Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week we'll be tackling the proposed new laws on religious freedom, examining how they interact with our tangled mess of existing laws for human rights and anti-discrimination. We'll also check in on the state of free speech on campus as the Minister Dan Tean takes an interest and the IPA takes a radical step of actually asking students what their experience is. And finally, we look at the mass hysteria greeting Boris Johnson as he burns his bridges in pursuit of Brexit. Then in our Books and Culture segment, we have some terrific picks, including the new season of Utopia, the controversial Netflix special from stand-up comedian Dave Chappelle, a terrific podcast with Neil Ferguson and Jonah Goldberg, and a sweet little film from Steve Coogan about Laurel and Hardy. It's a nice way to finish there. I'm Scott Hargroves, editor of the IPA Review, joined today by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Good morning, Scott. Great to have you in the IPA studio alongside Director of Policy, Gideon Rosner. Great to be here as always. And also coming back to the podcast, our National Manager of Generation Liberty, Renee Gorman. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Renee. Great to have you. Good morning, uh, non-assumed gender. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate. And if you're looking at your app, this is your chance to give us one hell of a good review. Five stars, please. We're as, uh, as shameless as Uber when it comes to chasing ratings. First up... Chris Berg, religious freedom bills are finally upon us. They have. So last Thursday, the Attorney General Christian Porter released a draft package of religious discrimination bills for our and the public's consideration. Um, These bills date back to the same-sex marriage plebiscite or um, survey in 2017. Um, In that debate, Morrison, along with um, a number of the conservatives like Peter Dutton, Um, stated that right now we should deal with same-sex marriage, but whenever there is a chance to back religious freedom, I will do so. The question at that time was whether religious ministers would be required to officiate over same-sex marriages. There was an inquiry into religious freedoms, and the result has been this. Porter actually framed these, these bills. I think we should talk about the substance of the bills in a moment, but Porter framed it in a really interesting way when he announced Um, uh, the bills last week. He described it as, or he told a a, a fairly lengthy story or went into some detail about the resilience of faith in hostile environments, talking about the experience of religious believers in the Soviet Union and uh, and the anti-totalitarian principles of of many religions. Um, So the the practicalities of this bill is that um, it really adds... Um, religious discrimination to the existing set of um, characteristics that we cannot discriminate against in the workplace and education and access to goods and so forth. So right now you can't um, discriminate on anybody on the basis of race or religion, or sorry, not religion, but race or sex discrimination or anything like that. This adds religious belief or activity to the grounds of anti discrimination law. There are some interesting complexities about this, but um, I'll throw to you, Gideon, first. How do you see this? uh, Do you think that this bill satisfies the debate that we've had over the last couple of years, all the way back from same-sex marriage debate to the Israel Folau case to today? No, it doesn't. I mean, this this was always going to happen. Uh, And I think 
uh, you know, we were always going to end up with a bill that would effectively please nobody and that would look like a complete and utter dog's breakfast, as this bill uh, does, in my opinion. And it's worth actually, as you mentioned, talking about how we got here. We got here because during the same-sex marriage debate, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, the then Prime Minister, swore black and blue that he would bend over backwards to make sure that in any in the event that same-sex marriage was legislated, that there would be ample religious protection. Uh, because he wanted the optics of having the bill, the bill sail through the parliament by Christmas and, uh, you know, have the rainbow hoopla and celebrations and the, the optics that, comes from that come from that, um, he, th that can was kicked down the road to this religious freedom review, which, by the way, was hijacked in large part by activists who had an axe to grind against religion and, and invented this absurd myth that there was some epidemic of faith-based schools firing gay teachers and expelling gay students, which was never, ever substantiated, by the way. Anyway, fast forward to 2019. Uh, we have the Religious Freedom Bill and another development that, it, that affected the final bill is the Israel Folau fiasco. Now, I'm as uh, concerned as anybody else about what happened to Israel Folau, but the, the Israel Folau affair is not a public policy issue. It had nothing to do with the government. Um, Israel Folau was not discriminated against or silenced by any anti-free speech law or statute. He was silenced by a private organisation. So it's a, it's a cultural matter, not a legal matter, and you cannot solve a cultural problem with legal or public policy solutions. I really, uh, I really agree with you there, Gideon, but I do think that where this bill comes from comes from an earnest place and a part of Australia, a part of mainstream Australia that still has Christian values, that has been concerned for a long time, and I think this is, is, is happening because the conservative or liberal side of politics has refused to take part in the in the culture wars. And because that part of the government has not been there kind of hand-holding and talking through these issues, it's kind of come to a head. And I agree that this is not the way about it, but I think it's come about for a reason. Yeah, I think that's, that's quite right, uh, Renee, that uh, to show that they've been, uh, albeit sort of belatedly listening to some of the concerns, um, uh, they listen to the IPA and have not created a, a, another positive right to religious freedom to add to the voluminous rights which are already enumerated in so many acts. But they have shown they're listening by this, this in this sort of laundry list bill, which it is. There's something that is already being called the Falau Clause, which is about the acceptable scope of a code of conduct. Uh, that you might rely upon if you're trying to fire someone who... It doesn't quite say if your first name is Israel and your second name is Falau, but it might as well. Mm. And there's also, quite remarkably, a Porteous Clause. So one of the uh, uh, and justified uh, cause celebs of uh, those who are concerned about religious freedom has been the uh, Catholic Archbishop of Hobart, uh, who was famously uh, the subject of an anti-discrimination complaint for handing out brochures uh, defending the law of marriage as it then was. And although they've not In had the most benign way. In the most say. benign yeah. way. A little little <clears throat> brochure and church brochures are always very, very <laughs> uh, dully put together, I must say. But in any event, um, so they've backed away from having uh, a general override of state anti-discrimination laws, except for this one. It actually refers specifically to the Tasmanian <laughs> Act and basically says, to the extent that that might apply, this federal law shall override it. So there's a Folau clause, there's a Porteous clause, 
there's no sort of general solution here, but there's a lot of bitty solutions. I like to think of this, Bill, in um, the context of the way human rights conversations have evolved in Australia. Um, and this is very much a... So we, we've described it as a religious freedom bill and the government would like to describe it as a religious freedom bill. In fact, it's a anti-discrimination bill. That's the, that's the most operative clause about yes. it and for some details that I'll go into in a moment. Um, so this is, um, uh, th this is where the debate about individual liberties and human rights from an official bureaucratic perspective and, and very much from a perspective of the sort of technocratic left has, has gotten us to, where you've got the human rights organisations are mainly concerned about enforcing anti-discrimination laws on private organisations like for uh, and and uh, like like companies and like sporting clubs and so forth and and this is the conservatives taking precisely that line they've said okay well if freedom is anti-discrimination law then why can't freedom as anti-discrimination law work in our favour as well? Why does it have to be I'll, only in favour of the left? I'll take that point and <clears throat> to sort of temper my earlier remarks, to play devil's advocate, you know, th there are people who would argue that uh, a wholesale dismantling of anti-discrimination law that is making life difficult for religious uh, expression is unrealistic. It's either it's, it's state-based or it's politically all too hard. So in light of that, given that Christians are being, you know, increasingly picked on, uh, the thinking is we'll give them, arm them with the same rights under statute that a whole lot of other protected attributes get. I get the argument. I just don't know how I feel about it as a matter, now, matter of principle. Now, see, this is the, that's a debate we've had on this podcast a lot, to be honest. So yeah. the idea is that there's a bad set of laws or there's a set of laws that have negative consequences for liberty um, that favour the left. So um, And it would be very hard for us to... to um, get rid of those laws. So therefore we need to um, add laws to that set that would favour the right or just to, to countervail the balance or, or something along those lines. Now I think it's completely, it's A, counterproductive, mm. um, it's B, quite hypocritical, and C, I just don't, I, I don't think that process works. All we end up doing is building out more bad laws. I, I don't see a world in which you sort of starve the beast of um, uh, of of, of anti-liberal regulation. Well, that's right. We're, we're solving problems caused by anti-discrimination law with more anti-discrimination law. I also think um, that Christians need to perhaps look at the past and be a little bit more cautious with looking at the government protecting their rights. Um, you can go back to the 1920s in Australia and I can hear my husband in, my, in the back of my head saying... Isaac. Like screaming at me Doctors, for not Dr. remembering Gorman. the name of the bill. Don't stuff this up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there was a law put in place by an Australian government um, because at the time secular marriage was becoming more and more popular and Catholics were saying that if it's not in a Catholic church, it's not marriage. They were just pretty much criticising secular marriage. And this law made it illegal to say that secular marriage is not real marriage. So the Australian government doesn't really have a good record with protecting religious freedom. And also you've got to remember as something, you've got to be able to, to, to criticise religion because criticising religion is criticising ideas. Yeah, and that's um, a good point, Renaud, because and, and, and reading through the bill, I'm, I'm, I must admit, um, I, I'm not probably not qualified to work out whether it's a good solution or not, but I, I am intrigued by... Uh, Christian Porter's careful listening to everything. So one of the things it does, for instance, um, to your point, Renee, is it's um, exactly symmetrical. So it's freedom to have a religious belief or freedom not to have a religious belief or, um, or sorry, it's not freedom, it's about discrimination law, but you get the idea. And then um, similarly, one of the things we've talked on this podcast, I think, Chris, you've made the point that 
um, say in Obama era of America, there was always this idea that um, uh, you uh, were allowed to have a religion so long as you didn't say or do anything with it. <laughs> so, long as, so long as it didn't affect anything you did. You're allowed, yeah. to, you're allowed to think whatever thoughts you like. Yeah, you're allowed to like. think whatever you town. like. Yeah, Go for to now. town. Your, your <laughs> prayers are your own no, and no, everything else is subject to state law. But this is very clear that not it's not just actions, it is statements of belief. Yeah. And I actually think that's that's, that's a positive thing because that's, that's starting to get get to what it is and whether the law works or not I'm not qualified to say but I at least like that they put a marker out there to say people should be allowed to say things but and not be slapped that, but with to go discrimination to, that point, to go to that point statements of belief is benign compared to you know acting on that belief and acting as if those beliefs are true and this is the debate that we had last week about um, uh, uh, about the seal of the confessional um, now uh, people genuinely act in ways that reflect their belief. So on the one hand, you've got governments trying to undermine the seal of the confessional, which is a core fundamental belief for um, religious groups that have confession as part of um, as part of their faith. And on the other hand, we say, oh, but you're welcome to say whatever you like. I mean, that, that's that's fine. But even on that, I think the, 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 as I read it, the protection for statements of belief only applies where your religion encourages proselytization. And for you to preach those beliefs, I don't think it's actually a general blanket protection. So it'll protect evangelicals, but uh, yeah, no, it's no. also it's also um, not, doesn't include the, the protection won't apply. Unquote. If the statement is deemed malicious or would be likely to harass, vilify, incite hatred against another person or group of persons. Now, for I can, example, I, saying that gay people and drunks and fornicators went to hell. Exactly. Yeah. So on, on on the face of it, you're like, oh, fair enough. It's as long as you're not hateful about it. But on the other hand, um, you know, uh, a part of the um, uh, part of the basis of this is the Israel Folau case, on which no doubt Rugby Australia would have made would that we? case. <laughs> I just before we move on, though, I just want to point out one one final part of this bill, which is. Um, the establishment of a freedom of religion commissioner in the Australian Human Rights Yippee. Commission. Um, now, I'll tell you a very brief personal anecdote. I think I gave the government this idea. Oh, so, <laughs> in what have you done? <laughs> and let me let me let me explain how this happened. So, I, in 2013, I was talking to Brandis. In fact, um, uh, Tim Wilson, the then um, Simon, Attorney General George then, Brandis, then, then Attorney General George Brandis, Tim Wilson, Simon Brini, and I were appearing in front of a Senate inquiry into. Um, into anti-discrimination laws and the idea that I came up with mostly on the fly was, well, right now the Human uh, Human Rights Commission has an Aboriginal Torres Strait Island Commissioner, an Age Discrimination Commissioner, Children's Commissioner, Disability Commissioner, Race and um, Commissioner, Sex Commissioner, and on top of that, a Human Rights Commissioner, which of course Tim eventually became. Why don't we also have liberal rights as well? Why don't you have not just a religion, uh, freedom of religion commissioner, but a freedom of speech commissioner and a freedom um, of association commissioner. So if we're going to play this game, Gideon, if we're going to play this game where we um, keep batting around and we keep trying to take the um, uh, seat of power, I'm not totally against setting up these sort of freelance lobbyists at 400k a year. (laughs) Yeah, well, look, you know, I I don't love the idea, but what I'll say for a freedom of speech commissioner, though, is that is not limited to any particular group in society what what bothers me about this is you you're just giving you know again one discrete group whether it be christians or religious people in general yeah. 
and weaponizing them for for there to be somebody whose job it is admittedly a bureaucrat to protect freedoms that apply to all of us like freedom of speech association and conscience the that's the important one the only thing that will save us is well-paid bureaucrats i've, <laughs> I've always believed that yeah, we need more of those <laughs> yep. and uh to again uh to christian porter's um uh credit uh he's opened this bill for a consultation period so uh the ipa will definitely be putting in a submission um, you also have the opportunity to put in a submission if you have uh, tough views on this. You go for it because that's <laughs> how democracy works. And we um, actively encourage it. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and we act it when we do actively encourage it, and we'll wait to see what happens in Parliament when we reserve the right to criticise it even more. Meanwhile, uh, our federal education minister Dan Tian, who has been uh, alive to the issues of free speech on campus and uh, previously commissioned the French Review. Uh, has made a big speech this week at uh, the National Press Club. Yeah, so basically across the road, Dan Tian gave a speech to the National Press Club on his agenda as Education Minister. I think it's either his first since becoming Education Minister or first since the election or something along those lines. Um, two topics, some of both of which are um, uh, close to the heart of this podcast. The first one was um, freedom of speech. So um, the he endorsed and has suggested that the Robert French model code on campus freedom of speech, which was part of the French review into academic freedom and freedom of speech on campus, will um, be introduced in various forms by all Australian universities shortly. But just as interestingly, or probably more significantly, um, freedom of expression on campus is going to be built into what's called the quality indicators for learning and teaching that universities have to follow, the federal government regulation or regulatory structure. Um, and uh, they will now not just be judging universities on how many students they have, how good quality the courses are, but also whether staff and students are afraid or not to discuss certain topics. Now, um, Dan Tian has um, gone actually pretty strongly on this, even though the French Review seemed to claim that there was no great crisis on freedom of speech on campus. Though, Renee, I know that this week you have released some preliminary results into, is there a freedom of speech crisis on campus, Renee? Well, the IPA took the, as Scott said, the rather the rather radical position of actually asking the students what they thought about this issue. Um, this was quite a little bit of a passion project of mine because I remember being on campus and I remember suffering, you know, events getting shut down or having these crazy security fees and, and then continuously hearing the university administrator say, no, there's no problem here. There's no free speech crisis. It's totally fine. Don't look away. It's, it's fine. And I just kept thinking, you, but you haven't asked us. And doesn't our opinion matter more than yours? And by, by what authority are you saying this? Because I've never even heard of you coming and meeting with these groups who have had events shut down. You don't want to come and discuss this. And from that, your denial, you have no real want to understand the mechanisms of how censorship is operating on campus right now. And I think what my research has revealed more than anything is this, this massive disconnect between what um, university administrators are saying is happening and what the students are experiencing. So you can see the results on the IPA website, but to give you a, a rough idea, 41% um, of students said that they feel they are sometimes unable to express their opinion in class. 59% of students said that they are sometimes stopped from voicing their opinion on controversial issues by other students. And 31% of students said that they have been made to feel uncomfortable by a teacher for expressing an opinion. And that particular stat got even worse when we broke it down into gender. So 44% mm -hmm. of male students said that they have been made to feel uncomfortable 
by a university teacher for expressing their opinion compared to only 23% of females. So the issue is is huge and they are very sceptical going into the future that any real change is going to be made until they accept that there is a problem and until they actually take measures to understand the problem. So I am hopeful because Dantine is actually looking into surveying students. So I think that's a good thing and it's a good step and, and we'll see if it actually reflects what the IPA has already found. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick up one inter interesting element of that that stood out for me. So you said that 31% of students have been made to feel uncomfortable about their views from a teacher and 59% have been prevented from voicing an opinion by other students. So there are two things about that. Firstly, uncomfortable, being made to feel uncomfortable about your views by a teacher. I mean, that's regrettable, but that happened to me plenty of times in university. It didn't stop me from voicing my opinion. I'll tell you that for free. Um, the other one is being I'm prevented. still made to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but, With your views. <laughs> um, but the, the difference between... 31% for teachers making you feel uncomfortable and 59% almost double for being prevented from voicing your opinion. That's a, that tells me that it's not so much a problem with the faculty as left-wing and as feral as some academics can be. The problem is with the student body. And it, and it does make sense because we've all been there when you did our undergrad degrees, you went off to some art institute or something and they'd always, you know what, you'd pick them out. There'd be this sort of a uh, person who was fresh out of Lauriston or Melbourne Grammar or something who just had that newly minted woke look about them. they just arrived <laughs> at university. They had the bloody kefir scarf on and a few piercings and they were making a statement just with their very, their very being. They had this lefty, aggressive, freshly born again woke aura about them. So... Um, and, and yeah, under those circumstances, those are the, the boundaries of discourse. Exactly, those are the people who will. Sh the minute you put your toe out of the acceptable boundaries of speech, they'll say that is offensive. That's disgusting. These people, these eighteen-year-olds who have no or very little understanding of the nuances of, of debate, uh, are just so full of enthusiasm for all for saving the world all, as they've been inspired all, to do. All of which might be might be fine, except the, the university administrators that Renee's been talking about uh, essentially wash their hands of that. They, they Correct. Say, they, well, that's they, true they, too. they say we take no responsibility for the for the climate of free speech on campus, and this has been one of the points that we've made again and again and again. Is it it is part of your purpose as a university to ensure that free speech is encouraged, that uh, there are opportunities to hear a diversity of views, and they've completely washed their hands of that. Yeah. And, that, and that's, what, that's what that. they mean by there's no free speech crisis. I think it's worse than that. I think that they've more than just washed their hands of it. I think they empower this radical fringe element of generally hard left students, and they kind of let the lunatics run the asylum mm. because it works best for them. It, it's kind of all, simultaneously the path of, path of least resistance and also the path that leads to them having more power over the student body. Because majority of students are saying, yeah, the, the university is pretty fine, leave us alone, we don't need 18 diversity officers. But there are 2% of students, and that was revealed in our survey, that 2% of students disagree that you should be exposed with to all ideas, um, even if they are offensive or challenging. 82% actually agreed with that statement, which is the positive news. But this 2% are constantly saying, oh, this university is inherently racist and sexist and you need to fix this problem and fix that problem. So the university administration goes, oh, great, we have an excuse to expand our bureaucracy and have 18 more overpaid bureaucrats. We're going to seize on that. 
I don't know. Why? There's yeah. also. I, I, I don't know whether we're talking about universities or we're just talking about a general culture of debate that um, in the community, that obviously universities being part of the community are. And of course, they're subject to um, young students, and young students um, uh, might be more radical than um, uh, uh, people as they grow up. Because what I think is important. And I, I, so I, when you were telling that story, Gideon, I was at university in the early 2000s. And I remember precisely those sorts of characters, but they weren't, I wouldn't have described them as woke. They were socialist alternatives at that time. <laughs> and they weren't saying that they were offended by yeah. what we were arguing. Now, maybe if you're arguing about the benefits of the Industrial Revolution, there's much less to be offended by. But um, uh, but but in that case, they were just, they were arguing and they would try to shut you down and then you would shout them back down and then, you know, and everybody um, uh, goes off to the next tutorial afterwards. What I think has changed is the belief, which doesn't really come out of anything but a small amount of radical theory, but has been taken up by the left in general across the country is that certain ideas cannot be expressed because they are offensive. Mm. So it's not just that they're wrong or terrible or they, they, they reflect poorly on you. It's that they're dangerous to be expressed and the idea of being offended is um, is a sort of ultimate rebuttal. And I I'll take, I'll take that point. But I, think, I just think that's a society-wide thing. I don't know that it's a university thing, and I wonder whether what we're, what we're seeing in the universities is just a very powerful instance of that more general trend. I'll take that point. Now, I will make actually this observation. So I graduated in 2010, so less than a decade ago. Now, I went to Melbourne University, or as I used to call it the Kremlin. I was certainly <laughs> in the intellectual minority there. Um, by all means, you know president of the campus liberal club, I was the most hated person on campus. But despite all of that, I knew that I had the space and the freedom to say basically within reason whatever I wanted and to express my views, to push the boundaries. And frankly, I enjoyed being a rabble rouser. I think that if I that went to... That doesn't sound like you. That doesn't sound like me at all. Shocked, shocked <laughs> as you may be before I was the respectable think tank uh, fellow you see <laughs> yeah, before you today. But, but also... Uh, but but, but no, this is an important point because now I think that if I'd done the same thing at Melbourne University today, I would have been dragged to that many damn grievance tribunals for being offensive, I would have been expelled. Uh, that and is 100% right. And I think there is a completely different <laughs> standard of behaviour right now for conservatives or, or lib even libertarian students to the, the radical mob that kind of have a lot of control over the culture on campus. And I get asked a lot because I run the generation, because I run Generation Liberty, oh, why aren't you, you know, trying to do a little bit more of the left tactics or, like, encourage your students to be a little bit more rabble-rousers? And I'm, I'm saying, because if I did encourage that, my kids would get expelled. Mm. And that's the reality of the situation right yeah. now. Yeah, also, um, Chris, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, I have to take issue. I mean, Please. you are allegedly an economist. <laughs> Correlation is not causation. We don't we don't over talk about yeah. my my numeracy. Yeah, but, <laughs> but this uh, this this idea that it's merely reflecting society. I I think a better model is, of course, that a lot of these ideas are incubated in universities. Yep. I mean, Australian universities in particular are terribly intellectually derivative. Of, of so, so, so they're, always, they're violently anti-American and then just pull all these ideas straight from America. Of course they are. And, but and, and they, they bring them into campuses and, and uh, they're actually, much of it is actually taught yeah. officially. This, so it's not just a climate of ideas. How many students do you think are taking identity politics 101 well, well, look, the no, subject? But, but no, the, humani the, the, the humanities, I was uh, actually at a book launch uh, last night uh, of Campus Meltdown, the new book edited by William Coleman, published by Connor Court 
publishing. Good luck to them. And I was looking at the figures in that. I mean, the, vast, the, the biggest single category of students around Australia um, are still in the, uh, what's it called, HASS. You know, it's, mm. it's the... Uh, uh, Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences. Thank you very much, Mr. Academic. Um, so, and in, I all, have one job. <laughs> in all of those disciplines, this is where it finds its way through. So you can't, you can't just say, oh, gee, I wonder where this came from. This is just part of the climate of society. Universities are actually incubating no, this. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Right. Universities, are part, universities are part of the process of coming up with these ideas. I just don't believe that the dominant path of um, these ideas comes from first-year arts tutorials. What I am certain that the culture that we have developed, uh, th that we have criticised very aggressively in the case of 18C or these anti-discrimination laws, um, that the right not to be offended is a genuine... Um, philosophy that we should all be all be following, and that um, that trumps our freedom of speech. I just don't believe that's because there are a couple of hard left arts tut tutors at University of Melbourne. Mm. Um, now, of course, I, I now I don't teach, so they 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 I don't have to be in front of students. So um, I'm absolutely no value to these these discussions whatsoever. But in I, I'm in a college of business. I'm in a business school, and this stuff is not in a business school. So um, you don't do first-year tutorials about identity politics. But I would actually want to take um, you down on that point to a little bit because one of the questions in our survey was actually that sometimes my uh, professor unnecessarily inserts political content into the lecture. And as you would assume, 52% <laughs> of, of arts and humanities students agreed with that. But the worrying thing is that 40% of science and technology students agreed with that statement, which shows that this is something that is going into, even into um, places you wouldn't think it would be. And, and it is kind of university-wide that identity politics and gender politics and unnecessary politics are now finding their way into science and technology degrees. Well, uh, th that's right. I mean, I remember back in my university days, the, the union was all the, the, the student union was on about pan-gender uh, this and 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 you know there are 17 genders and all sorts of other things that get talked about today it was nowhere outside of the university and uh, but at a certain point it it got currency in the wider community partly because it started being introduced into uh, teaching lectures and uh, the me medical school and so on. So I, I and take they Scott. They all go and get jobs in HR. It, well, well, yeah, that's right. that, and that's where it's probably most perverse. It's so, not the art students that we should be worried about. It's the HR students. Well, that's right. But the the, the point is, you know, it, it supports Scott's thesis that um, these these institutions do incubate these ideas that are then foisted onto polite society, partly because of the over credentialization of the modern job market. And I think it also highlights this kind of elitism within the academic culture that, you know, uh, one of the documents that I found so crazy was is have a look at Words Matter by Griffith huh. University, um, which says things like workmanship are offensive terms because it contains the word man. It's like so many, a large percent of the working class population use that and you're going... You can't, you can't say that. No, oh, no, 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 no. Now, Renee, if we And also, um, I want to bring up an example that um, actually Theodora, who's my wonderful Generation Liberty assistant, went through. Um, she was writing an essay about um, the Nazis' uh, persecution of Jewish music. And she quoted Goebbels saying horrible things about Jews, but she quoted him saying, look how horrible he is and look how horrible and racist he is. 
and she got marked down and, and that part was circled and and the teacher said that quote was completely unnecessary. It's too offensive to be in an what? essay, even though it's being used to show how racist someone is. That's how crazy things are getting. So we cannot even hold up historical examples of genuine racism because yeah. it's too racist. No, yeah. I, I'm going to have to pull the reins back here on this podcast because if we start enumerating the various <laughs> idiocies that we come across in the modern world and in our universities in particular, we'll be here for a very, very long that's time. That's all, that, that's all my Twitter account is for, Gideon, <laughs> Gideon C. Rosner. Yes, that, that is required. Uh, uh, to, f- to follow if you want to keep up with what's, uh, all these various idiocies. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we are also trying to keep up with what's going on in the UK. We, we've, we only talk about Brexit from time to time because it um, has taken so damn long <laughs> thanks to the recalcitrance of the, of the British establishment. But there is actually some movement at the station. There is. It's been an action-packed couple of days in the UK. So um, what most listeners will be familiar with potentially is that um, last week the Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that he intended to prorogue Parliament in mid-September. Um, uh, so the idea was that he would cut off time for Parliament to prevent Brexit, which is planned to go ahead for October 31st. Scott, when we first thought, when we first decided that we were going to talk about Brexit on the podcast, we thought we would be talking about proroguing Parliament. Turns out that today, or last night, um, uh, on Wednesday, uh, in the last few hours, there was a defection um, and a group of rebel Tories seized control of the parliamentary agenda and intend to introduce a bill that will prevent a no-deal Brexit from going ahead on October 31st. Um, uh, and Boris Johnson has in turn responded that he intends to call an election for October the 15th, so two weeks before the election is supposed to go through. That itself has to be voted on as well because the UK has a fixed-term parliament, so they so the Prime Minister can't just call an election. The parliament blame, has to Blame vote. the Lib Dems for that. Blame, I mean, fixed-term parliaments are cancerous on democracy, as I've argued on this podcast before, but that's the system that they have right now. So it is a, um, it is a mess, Scott. It is a mess, but it very much looks like the most likely outcome, and I think probably the desirable outcome, would be an election before Brexit goes through on October the 31st. And just before we, we come to that, I do... Just a, one last comment on what we were going to talk about, which is this proroguing of Parliament. The <laughs> irony is, the, the hysteria... Here's some material I prepared earlier. <laughs> yes, that's right. God damn, I'm going to use it in, in, regardless. Um, this was you know, the death of democracy, uh, destroying Parliament, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, there's a parliamentary sitting which followed the announcement that in due course they would be proroguing the Parliament. Yeah. And so even though... So here's, here's a classic. Philip Pullman, the, the, the author, um, uh, Sir Philip, uh, author of His Dark Materials, his tweet was, Johnson's attempt to silence Parliament is a low point in our nation's political history. Um, and then goes on to say that when he, when he hears of, um, of Johnson, he thinks uh, lamp uh, and ropes, and, but then later denied that he had any intention to uh, suggest no, that, just that Johnson items. should be killed. I'm, just, talking, I'm just listing nouns. It's just, <laughs> just this long cycle of, of, of hysteria and mania about everything that's going on. Well, actually, interestingly, that on that, Scott, the idea of this mania and hysteria, what I found really interesting is the reporting of this story as, as it's unfolding. And as I was doing research for this podcast, I was going through Sky News, 
um, on YouTube and watching yeah. the British coverage. And um, there was a BBC report and I found it hilarious because at the start there was this music and I'm like, that's really ominous music. That's really famous music. I know that music. And I looked it up and it is actually Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells oh, from The here, Exorcist. Here. <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly the same that's music. That's a great album. Taken down an octave. So... They were reporting on this in the same ch- tone that you will report on a ch- small child being <laughs> possessed by the devil. By the devil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, Gideon, to, do you think that um, the election is, uh, an election is the right move? Is it the right move, not just strategically, but sort of philosophically? Well, in terms of philosophy, no, because, you know, at the end of the day, the Johnson government is trying to implement the biggest democratic mandate in the history of the United Kingdom. Um, It's clear that the opponents of Brexit aren't bleeding about a deal versus no deal and all sorts of other things. They want to stop Brexit. In fact, Joe Swinson, the new Liberal Democrats leader, has said that if a second referendum, a a so-called people's vote, I thought the people's vote was the referendum, but if a so-called people's vote was held and the answer still came back leave, she wouldn't respect it. She wouldn't accept it. So in terms of tactics, I think it's the only way out, given that um, the uh, Johnson government has lost control of the parliament. The problem I have is, I'm just wargaming this, I think there would be a strong pro-Brexit vote, but the issue is with the Brexit party, will that split the vote in enough seats to give Corbyn the keys to number 10? Because it's, all it's first past end. the post. But it, correct, that, that, that's right. It's not a preferential system like we have. It's first past the post. So... I would imagine that if Johnson pulls the trigger, um, I don't know, maybe the Brexit party could, would only run in dead red Labor constituencies to try to peel seats off them. Them, Maybe they'll just withdraw and, and throw their whole weight behind Boris Johnson. I just, But then then again, do, is there a split between the resurgent Lib Dems and Labor that will enable the Tories or the, the broad right to win? I, I just, it's all up in the air. I think I, Farage I, is too smart for that. I don't think he... More than anyone, I don't think he wants Corbyn having the keys to the lodge. Um, he wants Brexit. He wants first Brexit, and, and he knows if he gives if he if Corbyn gets the keys, he, he's not going to get Brexit. So I think it would be suicidal for him to be a, to split the vote that much that um, it, it results in a loss. I don't. I, I have a strong view here that, um, and and this is based on a view that I've had outside the Brexit context. If Parliament does not function if it is unable to um, uh, achieve goals that it is setting itself, then that's what elections are for. So I understand that um, the the Brexit was an overwhelming, um, even though it was quite a marginal vote, it was a it was a strong vote for one particular issue, which is as clear a, um, a demonstration of the public will as you can possibly get. But having said that, the vote was three years ago. In fact, it was more than three years ago, and it's still been unable and the existing parliament to be enacted. In that case, you have to go to election. You have to reset. You have to re-ask for endorsement, not not of the question of Brexit, but of the leaders that you have in parliament. And I, I, I felt this for some time about Brexit because it's not going anywhere. It turns out it, there's no plurality for any of the options 
within the parliament. But isn't moment. that what Theresa May did in 2000? I don't necessarily disagree, but um, that well, was you effectively keep, what Theresa no, no, May did you, in 2017. You just keep having votes. I mean, this is, this is democracy. The, that's, this a, is a, that's the Remainer playbook, though. Just keep having votes until you, you scuttle no, the No, no, you don't keep having referendums. I, I, I think but that But this would be will a be a de facto plan. referendum on Brexit. Sure, but it's an election. I and mean, this, this is what we have elections for. And, sure. um, and if parliament can't function, if parliament, as it's currently constituted can't function, then you vote for a new parliament. If that yeah. next parliament doesn't function, you vote for a new parliament. You just keep... The, the, this is the nature of democracy. And yes, of course, it's not as exciting and it's not as um, uh, solid, and, and uh, but but it, it reflects genuine division. And one of, one of the other things it would do is it would certainly uh, be an effective cleansing of the Conservative Party uh, now that here, uh, John here. Johnson and his uh, followers have got the leadership and I think... Are much closer to the, the Tory grassroots. There would be a lot of uh, those who have crossed the floor would be disendorsed. Uh, I think you'd see a much stronger mobilisation of, of now solidly pro-Brexit uh, Tories and uh, whatever Conservatives are returned, uh, they, will be, they will be rock solid. So it becomes, a, I think, a de facto referendum. Well, it's a de facto referendum insofar as every... Democratic mm. vote is a referendum mm. on the policies set the before day. it. But, um, it's bit, it's but, but it's also clear it'll be cleansing of the Labour Party as well. And mm. that's that's the really important part here because we because the Labour is sort of nominally remain at the moment. Mm. But if you had an election this close to a no-deal Brexit, the Labour Party is gonna have to decide is it remain and it's gonna have to present to the public whether it's remain or leave. It can't be neutral, it can't be half-hearted. And then again, we find out. Well, that we'll find out actually. That's a, that is a good point, and that's an argument for a second election or an, an additional election because uh, at the last election, Labor were pro Brexit, the Tories were pro Brexit. You know, we didn't know what it looked like back then. But the only party that was expressly anti Brexit was uh, the Lib Dems, who didn't do particularly well. So yeah, if there was yeah. a clearer differentiation, maybe maybe it would help resolve the impasse. And it's a bit like it reminds me of eighteen thirty two, Chris. <laughs> Doesn't everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was uh, I wasn't born then. Uh, it was. Uh, this was when the UK was in tumult, uh, very narrow franchise, loss of legitimacy, and uh, uh, the Tories uh, appeared to have been returned uh, with with a workable majority, but um, uh, they their government ultimately fell, and that and that's when the Liberals came in and passed all the reform acts, and we ultimately revitalised British democracy. So. One can only hope that something like that happens yeah, again. We have elections for a reason. It's yep. to, to keep resetting and, uh, until people are happier. And, and to labour the point, introducing stupid rules like it takes a two-thirds vote of parliament to get an election is just madness. Which, yeah. I mean, we will talk about fixed-term parliaments again, no <laughs> doubt, but I just think they are insane because you end up writing these insane rules like that. Mm. That you know, if, you can't get that, if you can't get an election through, then you're just stuck in deadlock until... You know the next general election. I like deadlock. No, no laws get passed. Nothing gets done. <laughs> uh, the Belgian option. Uh, no, not in no. This. I'm not. I'm not against that. Not, not in this case. Not <laughs> in this think case. So. No, very good. Uh, we have come to that part of the show where our panelists talk about their uh, books and culture picks. Uh, not many books today, but certainly some great some great culture picks. And um, uh, we might borrow a little bit from the uh, Young IPA podcast and, and talk about the great man, uh, Dave Chappelle. Yes, Dave Chappelle. So this is my culture pick. Does everyone know who Dave Chappelle is? So Dave Chappelle is a, 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 you know, an American comedian. He had a show uh, that I must say I didn't watch called Chappelle's Show back Shame. in the sort of 
what when was it? The mid two thousands, late two thousands. Still get it on YouTube. Highly recommend. I, th- I think I, I think it was high. Sc- I was in high school at the time. I got sick of hearing people, um, you know, repeat the jokes over and over and over again. Anyway, <laughs> so he's he's come back. He's done a series of comedy specials where he's been wrapped over the knuckles for distasteful jokes and offensive jokes, and you know, you know the drill. So he's come back now and he's done a show basically expressly that does two things. One, it which takes a big whack at cancel culture, offence culture, but secondly, it appears to be aimed at being as as offensive as as possible. Um, and there is something to be said for being offensive for the sake of it. I certainly try to live my life that way. Um, but uh, for, for Dave Chappelle, though... It's a uh, moral position. It, 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 it's it's, uh, it's uh, in word and deed, I'll put it that way. Um but for Dave Chappelle, for Dave Chappelle though, he, there is something to be said in for, for deliberately pushing the boundaries. And comedy does have a rich history of being a vehicle for casting off the shackles of prudery, of obscenity law. I mean, Lenny Bruce was arrested four times in the 1960s for obscenity. Um, George Carlin was done for obscenity for his seven words you can't say on TV uh, routine. So... You know, this is the antidote to the position we find ourselves in. We're not gonna, we're not gonna solve woke cancel culture through a religious discrimination act. We're not gonna solve it by breaking up big tech and selling it. We will solve it when enough people stand up and say, "Here's what I have to say." I dare you to cancel me. I dare you, Netflix, to forgo the revenue that I'm bringing in by, with a brand of humour that people are desperate for. Not because they, look, even I blushed at some of the jokes that Dave Chappelle made, but. What he did was important, it was savage and it was brilliant. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Gideon. But I would actually also say I don't think that um, Chappelle has changed that much. I think it's um, Thomas Sowell who talks about you can stay in the same position and over the progression of years go from a liberal to a conservative or left-wing to a conservative just by staying in the same place. And I remember listening to his comedy as a child and um, him talking about pretty much he was talking about the African-American experience um, of poverty, but also it spoke a lot to me and my brother who were going through poverty ourselves. And he didn't pull any punches back then. And he's just the same Dave Chappelle. And I think our culture is just so different that when these people are like, oh, Dave Chappelle's become a white supremacist or something, like, no, this is the same person. You have changed, uh, not I will him. say the only thing better than his special was the, the hundreds of think pieces it spawned full of people saying, oh, I'm not offended, I'm not being a snowflake, but... But this is problematic. But, but Netflix, blah, blah, blah. Netflix is funny like this. So, mm. so I, I saw a tweet and I, I haven't got it to hand um, that pointed out that um, basically there are now two types of Netflix comedy specials. The first one is the right wing one that's like, and it's called something like "Triggered." Are you triggered? Um, and the second one is like our bodies ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> because because well, you got Hannah, Hannah Gatsby exactly. So uh. so we've gone from Hannah Gatsby, and I, to be honest, I enjoy both. Um, uh, you've gone from the Hannah Gatsby. Um, which is, you know, uh, ends in a serious note. I'm quitting comedy. He is, um, uh, he, he is, he's my tales of social justice to the Dave Chappelle. So I mean, there's clearly we've got a politically divided comedy market now, which is, I guess, kind of exciting. <laughs> it's a sign of the times. We're polarised. Yeah. Well, actually, kind of going on from that, because my culture pick was uh, Stan and Ollie, which is about Laurel and Hardy, like Hardy, I kind of went into a deep dive of um, old school comedy because I was kind of raised on, on Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers. And there was actually a resurgence of the popularity of the Marx Brothers during the anti-war movement and the first kind of student rebellion. And I am kind of want to make the argument that I think the Marx Brothers have once again have relevance because they are kind of the ultimate anti-establishment comedy um, 
Groucho Marx is completely uh, the wordsmith. Bugs Bunny was was based on Groucho Marx. Mm. He's constantly poking fun at people who are trying to tell him what to do. And then you have uh, Chico, who's who's an immigrant where you're not even sure what kind of immigrant he is, which, again, it would be so crazy foreign. for politically correct, correct um, culture right now. So I really feel like we need to be looking back as well as forward with comedy. Oh, um, I'd totally get behind a project to resurrect the, Mar- the Marx Brothers. But tell us about Laurel and Hardy because they, they're even perhaps less familiar to, uh, to modern audiences. Uh, yeah, so... Um, this film is actually a film about the later years of, of Laurel and Hardy's life and I actually grew up watching Laurel and Hardy films a lot as a kid and was very excited when this came out and it is a beautifully um, melancholic and gorgeous film, um, really nice film. Uh, Zach, uh, I dragged Zach along and he wasn't really particularly interested and he left saying how much he liked it. Um, I think it is... Partly brilliant because it is perfectly... Never doubt her, Zach. Never doubt her. Perfectly, perfectly <laughs> cast. Um, the actors cast actually mirror a lot of the attributes that the original Laurel and Hardy had. So John C. Riley was cast as Hardy and he is an American and he is mainly an actor, not a comedian, which is very similar to Oliver Hardy himself. And Steve Coogan was, who's very famous for his betrayal of Alan Partridge, was cast as, as Laurel and he's... a uh, Brit, like Laurel, and also someone who really understands the craft of comedy, kind of suffers for his craft of comedy, very similar to Laurel himself in life. So that relationship on screen was just so beautiful and apparently they had members of the family of of Laurel and Hardy there and, and they said that they felt their kind of spirit in the room when they were doing these famous skits. So I think it was a really honest portrayal of their comedy and a really beautiful portrayal. So I really highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd endorse that. And, and they, they recreate some of those skits, as, as you say, and they do it very, very well. I mean, they're both great comic actors. And the, and the thing about them, which they're, they're actually just funny, like there's, yeah. unlike, say, the Dave Chappelle or the or the Marx Brothers. There's no there's no political message. There's nothing subversive. It's just their their talent which brings it out and makes you laugh. And you think, oh my god, comedy for its own sake. Who knew? <laughs> what if that ever makes a comeback? That's very old fashioned. <laughs> yeah, very very old fashioned. But um, one to recommend. Um, I have one uh, which is not comedy, but uh, I've been listening to. I actually listened twice over because I wanted to catch all the nuances to a podcast. There's a podcast hosted by Jonah Goldberg, uh, formerly uh, National Review uh, contributor, uh, all-round columnist and author, uh, most recently of uh, Suicide of the West. Um, he has a podcast called The Remnant, and he had on the uh, the other day uh, Neil Ferguson, the um, uh, Scottish now American historian, and they they just had a terrific discussion. It was very much. Uh, relevant to here at the IPA. We have a Foundations of Western Civilization program. And when people ask, well, what's that about? We say, well, it's about the ideas, institutions and values of Western civilization. Um, it's, not a, it's not about ethnicity or, or that you had to be uh, particularly European or uh, to carry these ideas, institutions and values. They're available for all now. We are interested in how they came about. Um, and in this debate... Uh, Goldberg's an ideas guy. He's like, you know, it's about the founding of America. It's about classical liberalism. Um, ideas win. Whereas Ferguson is an economic historian. He's, he's, a, he's about the institutions. He's, he's actually about how things 
um, happened over time. So they're really sort of debating the the drivers of why uh, different things work. How how much of that is just an American versus a Brit with their own very distinct ideas of where their liberties came from? Um, well, certainly, you know, Ferguson is really challenging the the i the uh, not the classical liberalism of Goldberg. Although he does a bit, he, he jokes that he calls himself, you know, I'm just a Marxist. It's just that um, it's the bourgeoisie I like and not the proletariat. But his, <laughs> his view of history is is Marxist and economic determinist. So he does challenge, but but yeah, he does he does challenge Goldberg uh, talking about say the American founding and how it's an it's an idea and not a nation. And 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 Ferguson says, well, yeah, just just go to Canada. Like, do you notice when you drive over the border? Really, are there other people that different? Is the is the spirit of democracy that different? So, um, Ferguson's Scottish perspective is uh, that it's ideas, institutions, and natural resources. And basically, the Scots invented everything that was good. Adam Smith pretty much nailed it. Um, but of course, Scotland is is so cold and wet and and resource depleted that they couldn't do much with it <laughs> until they all emigrated to America, and then you got this this, this tremendous uh, uh, flowering and uh, march of prosperity. Whereas you don't get it in South America because they have neither uh, they didn't have the institutions. It was basically whoever got there first from Europe in South America just took all the good stuff and got slaves to run it. I'm going to um, sneak in a bonus culture pick because my culture pick is different, but I also listened to a quite similar podcast this week with um, Russ Roberts on Econ Talk interviewing Andrew Roberts. So Andrew Roberts, of course, the author of Churchill Walking with Destiny, who, um, Scott, you and I and um, John Roskam interviewed uh, a few months ago, and you can listen to it on the podcast as uh, on, on our podcast as well. Um, but it was really fascinating about just the writing of history and the way we think about really great rulers or great leaders in um, in, moment, in tense moments and how we think about um, uh, actions that we might think we they regret or we regret on their behalf or, or that we might think are disreputable. So um, if you're into the Neil Ferguson one, then certainly pick up the Andrew Roberts one. My actual culture pick, though, is um, another comedy show. So uh, I've been watching the new season of Utopia. Utopia is the Rob Sitch um, show with Sila Picola um, that is set in the infrastructure in an infrastructure agency of um, the Australian Commonwealth Government. It follows on um, he, he, a sequence of really magnificent comedy shows that he's run around and in Australian politics. The Hollow Men from a few years ago, but the real masterpiece, of course, was Frontline from the 1990s, which yeah. Yeah, which I watched. Working Dog Productions. Working yeah. Dog it's Productions. A team. It's a team I, I, effort, yeah. You got to watch Frontline every once in a while because it is still just probably the best cultural criticism of Australia. Uh, of, of, to be honest, an industry that is um, not what it was in the 1990s, but nonetheless. So Utopia is, um, uh, is, is a magnificent achievement. It's a bit better than Hollow Men, which was set in the Prime Minister's office, because um, Utopia is the bureaucracy and um, there's no power, there's no, um, there's no optimism, there's, there's, um, there's a sense of just being thrown back by um, bureaucratic demands, um, uh, HR requirements... Um, the the vagaries of the political system and so forth. Um, so they've only released two episodes as of this week of um, Utopia season two. The second episode has a big blockchain subplot. So um, uh, <laughs> I just I just feel I, the needed to, I just Thanks. needed to mention that. Tick, 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 <laughs> tick, 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 Maybe the people what they want. 
um, uh, so I can report it back as a media mention to the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. Um, uh, but no, it is it is definitely worth watching and um, uh, and worth keeping up because Rob Sitch specialises in these remarkable understated comedies um, and his offsider in this case, Silly Piccola, is also very, very good at playing the sort of straight man in the room against all this madness. And, and to the credit of Working Dog, um, uh, it's it's a set in and around politics, but it's not like it's uh, taking cheap shots at either side. It's no, no, no. And even, even the Hollow Men, it wasn't always... So the, the Hollow Men had instances drawn out from both sides of politics and um, policy proposals from both sides. It was probably just a a bit more of the labor side but um, by and large you couldn't tell and you wouldn't know which which you wouldn't know which people are in charge in part because it emphasizes just it doesn't matter which people <laughs> are in charge <laughs> yeah, every I, every budget has an infrastructure spend every yeah. budget has a infrastructure spend that's definitely not going to happen it doesn't matter which which party you vote for yeah, yeah you just you just need the the, the mock-up you just you just need the mock up and the cool videos about the intergenerational report, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving forward. <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> Not moving forward. Looking forward. Looking forward. You have been listening to Looking Forward, <laughs> in which the views of the panelists do not necessarily reflect the views of the IPA. To access our research or to join or donate, please do go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panelists today, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Gideon Rosner. It's been fun. And Renee Gorman. Thank you. And our producers, uh, Saul, Josh and Cy, thank you for helping put this podcast together and for all of your wonderful work in the IPA studio. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.